Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello and welcome to the Creative Giant Show. I'm excited today because I have a good friend and mentor, Terry Starbucker St. Marie, um, on the call today. So Terry's a writer, consultant, startup investor, and he's this immigrant from the Midwest to Portland, Oregon now. And so we will have a lot of talk about that immigration and just how his life is now. Before he moved here to Portland, he had a successful 23-year tenure as an executive in the cable television industry, and he's done a lot of really cool things to parlay that experience into the way that he's showing up in the body of work that he's working on. He recently he was um, recently cited by Inc. Magazine as one of the top 100 leadership and management experts, and he's excited because he's recently founded a new magazine focused on entrepreneurs called Built Oregon, and that's at builtoregon.com, which is going to be um, coming up pretty soon. He stays busy a lot. Terry knows everybody here in Portland, and that's one of the things that I really want to talk about, too, is he's one of the most connected guys here in Portland, and he's been here all of, like, three years. So we'll talk a little bit about how he goes about doing that and why he does it. And in this time here, he's now, you know, the president of the Portland chapter of the Social Media Club. He's an investor in the Oregon Angel Fund in Angel, Oregon, and he is on the board of the Oregon Entrepreneurs Network. So... He's got a lot, a lot of things in the fire and doing a lot of different things, but he's one of the funniest, most connected, most human people that, that you'll ever meet. So Terry, thanks so much for joining us today. Charlie, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Um, I know there was a, that was a lot of things to have to throw out there as an introduction. I apologize for that. <laughs> so you're apologizing for your accomplishments. That's quite funny. <laughs> well, for the, the length, the, the length, the length of them all, because I know, um, I'm almost at the point, Charlie, where it's like the when do you sleep stuff, right? That, that, that usually was probably the, the begs the question, right? <laughs> it does beg the question. We'll get into that a little bit. So let's start from where you are now. What are you excited about now? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I'm really excited about being a startup entrepreneur, Charlie. You know, I, I came out here four years ago after my corporate career. Uh, and didn't really know what I was going to do exactly. And I thought I would consult and maybe I'd write a book. And one of the past, at least at that time when I was sitting down and plotting it through a little bit, uh, was not startup founder. But somehow, some way, over the course of three years, I kind of fell in love, I guess that's the right way to put it, with the, the, the entrepreneurial initiative that was being displayed in front of me when I got involved in an angel fund and saw these people taking something from nothing, really, right? An idea, a concept or something, and then bring it to fruition um, for better or for worse or for failure or for success. And it's kind of rubbed off on me. So um, recently I had an opportunity with a couple of cool partners who sensed the need here to tell more entrepreneurial stories in Oregon. Um, and I jumped on it because a, it was, it had this higher purpose part of it. Um, that, that is to, to, to tell stories of Oregon entrepreneurs, to expose their good work, to connect other people to it and to hopefully rise, raise up the economic profile of the state, which I guess is a lofty goal. Um, and then the other side, it's a business and, and then, and then not an easy one at that, trying to make money from an online magazine. I, that, that was the scariest thing I could ever do. But, you know, like, like our, 
like some of our friends would say, like Steve Farber and them is one of those OS moments, right? Where you're like, okay, I'm going to look over this cliff and I'm going to take a jump. And so we did. And two weeks ago or three weeks ago, we launched a Kickstarter and, you know, much to our, our, our delightful surprise, we funded it in four days. We got accepted by an incubator, the Oregon Storyboard, uh, which is a great little Oregon um, initiative, state of Oregon initiative that we got accepted to. And we've got a head start and off we go. So that's what I'm really excited about because we're going to launch in November. That's where you, where you are now. But I'm, I'm interested in how you got here, right? Because you have this experience running um, a large cable company, right? Um, and being an executive seat of, of something that let's... I could be wrong, and, and please educate me if I am. That the, that that organization isn't agile and uncertain, and you know, growing and changing nearly as fast as the space that you're currently in. It's changing fast, but not not this world that you live in, right? Right. Um, right. And you were really good at it. You you rose to a high um, to a high position in there. You really transformed that organization. I know that from behind the scenes, right? Um, and now you go from that to being part of a three person team, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the obvious path, and we, we sometimes talk about the obvious path on, on, the, on the show, right? The obvious path is you get out of that position, you get another one sort of like it, right? right. You get another sort of executive position, and you keep growing and, and working on new challenges in that environment. Why did you opt out of that uh, journey? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question, Charlie. Why, why did I do this? And, well, I think the seeds of that were planted even before the last experience was over, um, because I, I got to a point, Charlie, it was probably a year or two before it was uh, complete. And I had set all these wheels in motion and did all the things that I write about on my blog about leadership. You know, I had, I, I had lived these principles that I put out there on my blog, that this more human leadership philosophy that I developed, I, I instilled it. It started to work. It was heading towards its hopefully inevitable conclusion of, of a sale, which because we were owned by private equity. So about a year or two before um, it was coming to an end, uh, I had, and this is what the great part of this job was, Charlie, you had to imagine this. I had a lot of opportunity to sit behind the wheel of a car and drive around the Rocky Mountains. Now think about that. Think how meditative that is. Yeah, it's a very tough gig. I got to drive through Yellowstone Park and Glacier Park and Grand Teton, some of my favorite places in the world, on business trips, okay? And it, I was one of the – I was very fortunate. And I got to see great scenery and, and it, inspiring scenery. And it was like I'd be driving and at the, at, there, there, there was a point probably where I'd handed off a lot of responsibility to other people because I wanted to teach. I wanted to pass on things. And it was like, okay, I've done this. I mean, I, I can recall a couple of moments, Charlie, of sitting behind the wheel, you know, just soaking it all in, driving down this road, and I'm going, you know, I've done this. And, I, and I'm thinking, what, how am I going to top this type of a situation to your point about could I go into another situation? Could I be a CEO one day? I said, it's not going to top this. This, this. It can't get better than this thing. I've got to do something different. I have to do something different. And that was the seed of, of in fact, even saying I'm going to move to Portland right? Because Portland represented different to me. But all it was in 2009, Charlie, was just conceptual. And Portland was like the, the, the target on a map that represented different. That's all it was at that time. Portland, yeah. different. <laughs> yeah, Portland is different in that way. Um, 
you know, we moved to Portland at about the same time. I moved here in 2010. Um, and so I moved from Lincoln, Nebraska, but I was originally from Fort Smith, Arkansas. Listeners of the show probably know that. So um, Portland definitely re- represented different. Um, and I think it does for a lot of people. Um, <laughs> and so you want to do something different. You'd reach sort of the top of that game that you wanted to play, it seems like. Now, there is a bridge between where you are now and and that and that was Sobcon. So let's let's talk a little bit yeah, about Yeah, because Sobcon. a lot of this overlapped, I suppose, and Sobcon was like the big overlap because in two thousand and six, really, I that's where Terry Starbucker came from. If anybody's wondering, because <laughs> that's always a mouthful, right? Terry Starbucker Saint Marie. Um, well, in two thousand and six I decided to launch a blog and all it was at the time was just uh, musings and and so I didn't really want my employees to read it uh, for obvious reasons because I didn't want it to be a topic of conversation I wanted them to focus on the work blah 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 and and so I needed a name and I just borrowed a name I used in some other context and uh, it was Starbucker writes a block and the crazy thing happened Charlie you know I started getting more interested in it and and I got interested in people reading what I wrote which is I guess the big hubris part of blogging, right? You want people to read it, not just put it out there. So I started looking around at other people's blogs, and that led me to um, Liz Strauss's blog. Uh, Liz Strauss is a, a blogger, a consultant in Chicago, who was at the time way ahead of her time in, in building community online. This was before, mind you, Charlie, this is before, fa- before Facebook and before Twitter and um, and so she was using the comment box of her blog essentially as what people are using Facebook and Twitter for today. And I met, yeah, yeah I and I met days. her that way <laughs> and we hit it off. She was building community and I love that concept. I, I, and one day we said, what would it be like if we got the people that were conversing online together in a live context? And that's where Sobcon, which SOB at the time stood for a successful and outstanding blog. That was her her, her brand. And we, in, in 2007, sort of under the radar, my, my company didn't even know I was doing this. We had our first convocation of, let's call it Liz's followers, I suppose, in Chicago. And we had a hundred people show up and it was, it was wonderful. And it expanded my network in my world exponentially, if you can imagine that. And they wanted to do it again. So it became an event in Chicago, which we ended up doing for seven years. And that really overlapped uh, what I was doing in the field. And so when, that, so when the company sold and I did move to Portland, the one connective tissue I did have to, your, to what you're getting at is that we did decide to do a couple of Sobcons here in Portland. And that, I think, triggered a lot of stuff that um, put more meat on the bones of what different was going to be for me, really, because it was, I had to, go, I had to start, to your point about networking, I had to, well, I didn't know anybody here, and Liz and I decided, well, let's do an event, so what am I supposed to do, right? <laughs> so I called, you know, we had, I think we had started corresponding, although I think we knew each other online beforehand, so, and, and I started talking to other people and I, I started wanting to get introductions to other people and, and, and that led me one place and another place and start, so, so in five months time to try to get an event going because we had our first SOPCON here in September of 2011 and I moved here in November of 2010. So literally less than 10, 11 months later, I had the audacity to put on an event here in a city that I'd just been in for like eight months uh, and I didn't really want to be an interloper if you know what I'm saying. So 
so I guess in a way that really set the foundation for what I'm able to do here now because of all the networking I did because of SOPCON, the event. Yeah, well, there's this interesting thing that you've kept throughout all three, and I think it's one of the things that you're a genius at, and that's at community building. So um, looking at some of the principles that you have, and we'll talk about some of those um, on your eight principles for more human leadership from your website, that in my interpretation, it's largely about building an actual community of, of um, workers and teammates and things like that, right? As opposed to just a large group. Um, so that was about community building and community managing and, and vision. Yeah. Sopcon, community building, vision, so on and so forth. Um, you coming to Portland, community building, vision. And now um, or, built Oregon, still around the entrepreneurial community. So it's just this very big arc of Terry builds great communities that, that pulls everything together there. So, yeah, I mean, it's different, but yet the same, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's different, but the same in that same way. Relationship building would largely be the way that would say it. And that is one of those things that I kind of wanted to highlight because in some ways there are different paths for people to reach success, right? So you have more maybe what might be the Maven way. And we talk about Maven connector sales people, right? Maybe Maven way you put out a lot of like thought leadership, body of work, frameworks, patterns, so on and so forth. There's the salesperson way where it's like you're selling something and you get a high degree of success in your ability to take an idea and get mass adoption. Then you have sort of a community building aspect where it's neither like the selling of an idea per se or the selling of a particular product, but it's galvanizing people and pulling communities together, right? And so you, along with Pam, you guys are like my my archetype of connectors because of just how fluidly you guys do it. That's Pam Slam. You've heard she, she's part of the show as well. So Pam's really the genius when it comes to that, not me. I think she's like the ultimate. I think there's room for multiple geniuses. Uh, I suppose, but um, I, I'm... I'm a great admirer of hers, too. While we're, I wasn't necessarily going to throw some tips out, but give us, if you could, sort of three things to really think about if you wanted to uh, really kickstart like a community building, um, not necessarily for a startup or an organization, but just you're in a new community or you want to have a more, more, um, a more flourishing community. Like what would you normally advise people to do? Well, um, well, first and foremost is um, if you really want to build a community, you can't wait for it to happen to you. You have to be, uh, you have to overcome any innate fear of reaching out and asking for help or or asking to meet for coffee. I, you know, I find I find that a lot of people get stuck right there. It's like, well, I want to network. I I I want to make friends in this town. Well, well, reach out to people. Well, you know, I'm a I, I'm I don't really want to do that. I'm afraid to do that and. And or or walk into a meeting or, or a, an event or a meeting and just walk up to a stranger and introduce yourself. You know, it's a it's a different world now. Where I think in in the old days you wanted to you brought your you know your pocket full of business cards and and you just work the room like I guess there are rooms like that still exist today where you just hand out business cards. But that's not the way it works. I think I think you have to be you know you have to be a proactive community builder. And I know that sounds almost completely like yeah right, but. Um, you have to absorb that. It's like I have to if I, if there's a community I want to build, I have to be proactive in building it. It just isn't going to happen by itself. Just because I have a blog or 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 just because I have a, a Twitter account and I express my opinions and I, I expect people to rally around that, I have to be sort of more forward and say, I need to sit down face to face, have some coffee. Have, and I I don't know how many coffees I've had here, Charlie. It's probably like I I, I mean 
conservatively, it's probably four, five, six hundred, right? Um, so that helps. The next one is, you know, having a common, you know, being having an innate ability to find the common ground with people. I mean, I've met those six hundred coffees. They're not all the same. You know, these people are all different. Everybody's unique. But I think I think to build community, you have to have maybe a commonsensical innate ability to say, well, where do we have common ground here, particularly around whatever you're trying to do. In my case, it's it's always uplifting an entrepreneurial community, right, through SobCon. And so my, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find people and have conversations that sort of work around that topic. And, and, and I'll always be a prober to say, well, why are you, you know, why, why, why do you like that topic? Or why are you an entrepreneur? And then I would invite and push them towards other people. Well, you ought to meet this person and you ought to meet that person. And so I think, um, in my case, it was entrepreneurial initiative. In other people's cases, it might be causes or nonprofit things or um, whatever it may be. I think it's it's having this ability to 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 connect with somebody on that sort of a level. And I think the last part of it is Charlie is just um, you have to like people. Um, you have to like. Um, not to say that introverts can't do this, and I, and I don't want to. I'm not. I don't want to be quoted to say that you have to be an extrovert to build communities. I, I I don't think that is any close to the truth. I just think I think introverts and extroverts. That's that's not the right target I'm looking at. It. It's just the it's just the innate. Like, um, I can't I can't flourish. I can't exist. I can't enjoy my life to the fullest without community. So therefore, I need that. That's my drug. And so um, that's what I cherish. And so if you don't have that, you're never going to be a good uh, community builder. So I think, I think it's just a basic desire to want to, to connect with people. And then maybe I'll add a fourth thing is that, is that um, uh, somebody once said that people always want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And once you realize that, and, and all your connecting and community building is sort of centered around, you know, we're all in, in, in creating this bigger than yourself type of thing, then community building becomes much easier. So I think that would be the fourth thing too. So those are some really great tips. And that actually pulls me to um, one of the things I did want to talk about from your eight principles, um, which is your last one. Um, so if you go to the website, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, but we're looking at the eight principles of more human leadership. It's got a very cool poster about this, right? So let's talk about the last one because that's a great point, right? Um, and, he's, and he says, connecting it all to a higher purpose. Humans want to be a part of a meaningful cause that's bigger than themselves. What gets me, and this is, I see it happen more often in when I'm working in an organizational context or we're talking about organizational business, is there's this shyness around um, connecting people to our higher purpose, aside from the bottom line sort of economic terms of the company. Um, and I'm curious, in your experience of both your, your executive experience, but also when you're working with organizations that, that reach that point, what, where does that resistance come from to really get people rallied around a higher purpose beyond the, the, the numbers of the business? I, I, you know what I think it is, Charlie? I, and I, and I, get, I think the, the one before that, the, the principle before that, when, you say, when I say fighting complacency and the naysayers, I think, I think there are a lot of... of I don't call it, I don't know if I want to call it um, baked in attitudes about businesses that they they can't be uh, humanity can't be too involved with it, right? 
caring can't be too involved, that loving can't be too involved, that that there are certain words that you can't be emotional, you can't make friends. Remember all these rules that used to be out in businesses? A lot of that, while I think generationally, I think that has begun to change, I still think, though, that, that structurally, you know, from the standpoint of business in general, I think those, those barriers are still very hard to knock down. Like when I came in uh, to my cable, this particular cable company back in 2003, it was, it was rampant. It was like, it was just do it, do it the way I say to do it. You, you, work, your, you work your 12 hours a day, you don't complain and shut up and get it done and we're not going to pay you that much and the budgets are going to get cut every year. I don't give a rat's butt about you. And um, so now, so, so that's another issue too. It's like, so when you're conditioned, you, you may feel in your heart, Charlie, that you want more out of life than what you're doing. Let's say, you, let's put yourself in that position and that's a great position to talk about. Somebody making, you know, 12 bucks an hour uh, crawling around in crawl spaces where it's 95 degrees to install somebody's cable. And what higher purpose is that, right? And, but yet, when I say connecting it all, I mean connecting it because I think deep down in people's hearts that, yeah, they want a reason to get out of bed in the morning, right? But they get so beaten down by the naysayers and the people that just decide that business should be, just, should be inhumane almost, is that they, they just, they get beaten into complacency. They just, they, they don't trust anything. So, so, so imagine then walking into that situation, Charlie, and then saying, Oh, now, okay, I'm going to connect it to a higher purpose. What do you think of that? And they're going to go, you're full of whatever. That's not going to happen. I don't believe it's going to happen. So you, you, almost, you almost have to then overcome a sense of disbelief or mistrust that you know, no one's going to walk in and, and figure out a way to make my job, put my job in the context of a higher purpose. It's not going to happen. So um, that's the tide that a lot of leaders in a business concept context have to work against it's like not only not only do you have the people that are just instinctively against it against touchy-feely uh then you have the people that were in their hearts probably had it in them to be that way but it was beaten out of them and so um that is the biggest challenge of leadership and that's why it's the last one is that um if you can get to that point, if you can somehow overcome all of the stuff, and you have to go through the first seven steps, frankly, Charlie. You can't, you just can't, as I was just illustrating, you just can't walk into a room and say, okay, our higher purpose is, in fact, with a cable company, it really was have a good reason to get out of bed every morning and, and work and be happy with what you're doing. That was really what I was trying to prove. But I wasn't going to do that on day one. It's interesting here because... A lot of employees, well, we have recently read that something like 80% of employees are not satisfied with their current job. Right. Um, that's a lot of people, obviously. Yeah, that is. Um, and employees end up starting businesses at some point. And at some point, they end up, and largely, it's sad when you watch it over a, a 10, 15-year cycle, they end up creating mm-hmm. the very environment they left. They hated their job, so they became the boss, and then it, sort of the system maintains. Um, right. But there's kind of this this thing going on that, that made me think about why you were talking. It's like there's meaning well and doing well, right? And mm-hmm. a lot of people mean well. Um, 
and it seems like in shareholder capitalism, and that's a broad economic, you know, brush there, but it seems like doing well equals meaning well. And they wonder why people that are in the crawl spaces don't get like, you're, we're doing well as a company. What's your problem? Well, right. um, there's a different degree of reciprocity and, and, and sort of reimbursement that happens at different levels that people miss out on it, right? You guy crawl into the ground space, he doesn't see the big numbers and he may not be a beneficiary of it given the system, Right. There's also, and why I get excited about entrepreneurship and really helping people like build those types of businesses, um, Mm -hmm. build really solid, strong businesses is because a lot of times people mean well, end up in entrepreneurship and small business, but they're not doing well by their people. Normally in terms of keeping people paid and keeping people still that reason to get up. So, you know, as we're in business, it's the job of a leadership leaders, whether you're in, you know, big business or whether you're in startups is to both mean well and do well. Which is why I actually am going in reverse with the connecting to the all higher purpose. Because part of what we're talking about, as much as we're talking about community building and love and happiness, you're also a bit of a stickler on the metrics and finding the things that actually matter for the business and paying attention to those. So how do you how do you work that out? Uh, it's a delicate balance, um, but I think it's truly necessary to be able to make. You see. It's a means to that end. I, I, I think a lot of people think that, well, what, what, how can you be so focused on metrics and accountability and, 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 and then at the end it's all touchy-feely, happy, uh, higher purpose? Well, you can't, you can't get to the end of, my, of the road, which I call this higher purpose, unless you have this other stuff in there. And I, what I mean by that, Charlie, is that there has to be this sense of fairness and caring put into how the business gets run. And believe it or not, unless you have good processes in place, unless you build a culture of accountability where it's fair, you know, there's shared responsibility and you have a good set of metrics that sort of tell people how you're doing against that, you'll never get to that because I'll tell you, because what I, what I ended up doing, Charlie, was this, it was like, and this was, this was how I illustrated at the end how that higher purpose was met. I connected the values that I had set up for the enterprise, which were two very simple ones. It was serve our customers and support each other. Yeah, it seems pretty simple. I like it. Seems pretty simple, right? But but that was what we we had it on our walls. Everybody said it, and I and I broke it down into two things, and and then we had three numbers, three metrics that we measured um, constantly, and it was a net promoter score, which I called customer happiness. It was our customer fault rate, which I call customer pain, and then our total customers. So I sort of said, these three numbers represent how we're doing. And then the value set is that that's what we instilled into that, into achieving those numbers. So I would go to a whiteboard at the end, and I would, I would say, this is our business plan, and I would draw a smiley face. And they were going like, what the heck are you talking about, Terry? And I said, well, look. If we do these five things that I'm going to turn over the whiteboard and show you, which in, a, in, a, in essence were serve our customers, support each other, net promoter score, customer fault rate, customers. And I'd say, here, you, you do these two things from a value set. We work really hard to get to these last three things on a metric set. And we all hold each other accountable to that, right? And we push and we push and we keep raising the bar and we work together as a team. We're going to get to this nirvana place where you don't get calls at 3 o'clock in the morning anymore to go out because the, the network's running right. You come to work every morning and everybody's smiling every day because you're achieving, you're getting things done. And all of a sudden you jump out of bed in the morning and you say, dang it, I am so happy to go to work. This is freaking awesome. And I said, 
how about that world? And that's and then that's the smiley face, right? And you're like, do you want to be a part of that world? Well, then you you've got to move the dial. So if I didn't have those numbers to point to, Charlie, well, how else could I measure that? How else could I come up with some uh, tangible uh, way to show that we were getting to that smiley face other than just walking into a room and smiling all the time, which isn't going to work. <laughs> I mean, but you could come up with a bunch of corporate platitudes and put them up on the wall for like the posters of here's our value. And <laughs> Nah, but that doesn't work because people, individuals, uh, Patrick Lencioni once said, Charlie, I don't know if you read the book, uh, Three Signs of a Miserable Job. Good book. And that struck me. I read it about five, six years ago. And it said, well, uh, employees need to have a way to measure themselves to really, really be happy with their job. Just let that one sink in for, them for a while. Not the company, but themselves. So we tiered all these numbers down to where I, so a, a, an employee could know how I affected the net promoter score or how I affected the customer fault rate. So I could measure my own success relative to the goals of the company. And uh, that was one of the secret weapons that I really employed. Once I, once I sort of sunk in with me, um, it's, it's powerful. Yeah. There's a book, oh, I forget the author, but the power of progress that talks along similar lines yeah. in the sense of what makes most of us unhappy is setback and, or just sort of always being stalled. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's not necessarily that people need to finish things all the time, but they need to feel like they're getting, like, that they're progressing towards goals that matter to them. Right. And as long as you've got that going on and you're building in the, the feedback loops that keep people moving towards those, that's that's the way people naturally gravitate. Um, and so you don't have to do a whole bunch. We have a system, though, that, that really in some in some organizations that just people can't get anywhere and it's frustrating. And then at the same time, from top down, it's like, you know, why aren't they getting it done? And then from the bottom up, it's like, why won't they let me get it done? You get all these sort of things that just don't have to be that way when you line up the that what people want to do, what they value with what we can show matters to all of us, which is what I would say the metrics are. These numbers matter to all of us. Yeah. And I think it also serves as the measuring stick for the accountability side. And I don't, I don't want to underplay that either because that's the, um, like you said, that's the, the other side of the coin where I, I can't tell you, and I don't want anybody listening to this to think that I've never fired anybody even though under, under this philosophy or ever <laughs> to discipline anybody or, or really come down hard or, or because it was all, it's all part of being fair because uh, if, you, if you set up this accountability scheme and, and someone's not doing it and they just don't care and it's not going to work out, you can't just sit idly by, which is a, another weakness of a lot of leaders is that they tend to want to be in what I call this comfortable middle where they don't go, they don't, pursue and try to fix the problems on the one side, but on, and then on the other side, they don't, they don't really reward the people that are kicking butt and really doing the great job. They tend to sit in the middle. And what I find the most interesting thing in the world is you go to any company, and this is the one metric I will tell you that is the best measurement of that of all, is when you look at annual salary reviews. Um, it's, business is notorious to say you've got a 3% budget, right? You have, you know, so you work with 3%, you do your performance reviews, and then you, let's say you've got 1,000 employees or 100 employees, whatever, and you lay them all out, and guess what, guess what the preponderance of raises are going to be? 3%. It's regression towards mm -hmm. gain. And I would look at that 
uh, Charlie, when I first started doing it and I would, I really wanted to live what I was talking about. And I would go to my managers and go, you gotta be kidding me. Right. There are people that deserve 5% or 6%. And then there are probably people that have, are not being held accountable and deserve zero. But people, it, humanity doesn't work like that. And uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're looking for mediocrity, then give everybody the same raise. And, and that's another metric that I think anybody can look at and say, well, what kind, of, what kind of business are they running here? And that'll tell you a lot. Yeah, that's a, you know, when we look at organizational design slash development and incentives, that's a, that's a really big topic. But it comes up over and over again is that, um, well, I'm going to pause here because there, there are all different ways that I can go. One of the things that, that I'm really grateful for is, you know, my background as a military officer because it was quite understood that that comfortable middle position like that's not what you're there to do, right? Um, you're there to make the organization better and to um, deliver on the current mission. That's that's really um, as I as I got a little more senior and I understood that as a commander, especially my job was to prepare the future force mm-hmm. and to accomplish the current mission. If I achieved both of those goals, right. that's that's really all I had to worry about. Yeah, yeah. The simple days, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, before I got an entrepreneurship, and that's that's really the thing is that like. If you weren't showing up providing solutions that help prepare the future force or accomplish the current mission, like you weren't doing your job. Right. And if people need to move out of the seat, if they need to be out of the army, if they need to be wherever they are, it was your job to make that happen. It wasn't your job to maintain the status quo. Well, that's how, you you know, I think the military analogy is really perfect because you're not, you're not going to win much if, uh, if you're always at that 3%, right? If you're always living in the middle. Um, and same thing in business. Um, mediocrity breeds mediocrity, and if you even grade that way, then you're you're just complicit as complicit in the breeding of it yeah. as anybody else yeah. as a leader. So let's switch to to talking about how some of this might apply to what you're doing built Oregon. But you know, one of the things that I, that I love asking people on the show is, is is the following question: What is the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? My most unanticipated. Challenge. Yeah, the biggest. I should say the biggest. Um, unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? Um, it's what am I going to do with my book? So for those of you, I've written a book. I've been working on it for, oh my gosh, over two years. And I had, a, I had one goal in mind. I, I wanted to find a major publisher. So I had tilted everything towards that. And I put all the energy towards it. And at the end of June, I submitted it um, to publishers and I got turned down by all of them. And so now I'm left with a, a basically a you know, 60,000 word manuscript that I put a lot of effort into. And what direction do I go in now? And that, that, that frankly, because I'm usually an optimist and I'm thinking, okay, this is going to work. I'm going to get, I'm on this path. I'm going to get the, the cardboard cut out and Powell's and you know, I'm going to go on a book tour. And it was all sort of, okay, working towards that. And poof, mm-hmm. at least, you know, not really poof, but it was unantic- certainly unanticipated because my, my mind had been sort of built up to that. And now, you know, in a way, I've, I've been a little bit more deliberate. And, and um, so because, of, because of that, it's, been take, it's taken me a little while to recover and really try to figure out what I want to do with yeah, it. Yeah, I really want to, um, you know, say thanks for, for putting that out there because you could have skirted around it and you could have given us some sort of BS like, oh, there's this, 
this faux challenge, you know, sometimes happens as leaders, right? Where you, where there's like this acceptable challenge out there that we can talk about as opposed to like, dude, it sucked. I spent two years and you didn't say that. Right. Uh, um, But you spent two years and now what do you do with it? So, um, so from my perspective, again, we have coffee enough that I kind of know what's going on. On the one hand, you have this huge success, which is built Oregon and it, it getting some steam and you, this partnership that's really working for you. And then you've got this um, current sort of stall or let down. I'll let you pick whatever word that, that's there for you. Like, how do you reconcile the two on any given day? Because both are true at the same time for you right now. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, I think it's just a it's just a, a perfect illustration of life, really, it's it's that, um, you know, you're you're. I think it was the is it the Renoir line about the the stream? Like you're you're in a pebble in a stream sometimes, where you know you you just get sometimes you just get directed by the current, and you just have to go where the current takes you. And um, I think my life right now is a perfect illustration of that pebble in a stream, right? Because I um, as I sit here today. On September twenty, you know, September twenty second of twenty fourteen, I even three months ago, I don't, I couldn't have predicted that I'd been sitting in this particular position. Where, if you remember, four months ago, I I was I was on the precipice of thinking I was going to go get a book deal. I was on the precipice of we were just talking about Built Oregon, and I didn't really know if it was going to pull together or not. In fact, that one, if I had to, if I was a betting person at that particular time, Charlie, <laughs> right. If, if you would have said, well, what would have been the most successful thing and what was going to be the, the one that was sort of dragging along, I would have probably said the exact opposite of where I sit today. Um, so the pebble has kind of gone down a different path down the, down the stream. And, and so my, my job as a human, I suppose, in, in terms of what to, how to sort this out would be to say, well, um, I have to – now there's an adaptation I have to make. And I have to adapt to the success. I mean, both cases, really. I have to adapt to a sudden success of Built Oregon. And that scares me because now I have to make, now we have to publish it. Now we have to be fulfill all of our promises, right? And then on the other side, now, now I have to adapt to what has been thrown at me in the book. And that scares me um, because uh, self-publishing, which I guess is the next way to go, is uh, a yet another entrepreneurial leap, right? Because now I'm in a position where I would have to finance, you know, personally finance, personally take on a project like that. And that's the part of the debate I'm going through right now. So in a way, they're almost merging funnily, funnily, is that a word? Uh, amusingly, or, or, or however, whatever adjectives you want to use or ad- adverb. But it's like they're both, they both merge together in a sense that, that they're both entrepreneurial leaps that, now are are like okay in front of me and so um and they both they both have their element of scariness to them does that make sense makes total sense makes total sense you know yeah we often there's this idea that life is good and easy or when it's hard it's bad right so when that's kind of the myth out there but when you get into like a high performance stage or when you go into the world of entrepreneurship which you got to get used to is life can be good and hard in the sense of both exist at the same time and you wake up in the morning in this sort of um, delusional space where like there's some things that are going terribly there's some things that are going great and you're just kind of you know going through all of that so you know that's a really great example of like um, this idea that things are either good or they're bad or this things like 
it doesn't exist and it's just figuring out what to, you know, waking up in the morning, figuring out where the juice is and going with it. You know, that's really true. And I, I, I would almost back up one step and say, uh, before anybody jumps to any sort of conclusions about where my head is at right now or how I feel about things. But, um, I would also quickly add that, um, I've never never been more invigorated by my life, I suppose. Uh, and in what lies ahead, uh, then now, um, I feel, um, blessed in so many ways that, um, I've been able to move to this community and walk around and take coffees and, and think about even writing a book, which other, when others, I, I do still think about that person in the crawl space. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, but then, but then it just keeps coming back to the same thing. It's, you know, we're all humans are all trying to find purpose in their lives you know, a reason to live <laughs> and, uh, you know, a reason to want to get out of bed every day and do something. And, and, you know, you have to play the cards you're dealt and sometimes you get lucky and, but, and, you know, luck sometimes can be manufactured as well. And I, and I, I put mine in my share of work, but I think, I think on balance, I, I, I'm trying to take advantage. I'm trying to take full advantage that of whatever luck and good fortune that has come my way. I, I don't want to let it I don't want to fritter it away. And I don't think I am. So, and, and that's what's, what's keeping me going right now is just the, the thrill of, of taking on these things and knowing that a failure here and there in this context isn't going to, no, you know, uh, isn't going to like put me back 20 years. It's just, it's just something mentally and physically or whatever. I just have to go on and deal with. So I'm lucky. If People listening to this call or like were to experience you in the flesh, Terry Starbucker, and they were to take one thing away from you as far as like insight or just something to help change their, their life or their world. What would that one thing be? I think it would be uh, what I call my, um, my nature of being uh, – what, what do I call it? Um, cautious optimism or realistic optimism. Um, I, I think – I think I tend to always put my dial past the middle when it comes to, you know, I'm not a Pollyanna, but, um, I'm always trying to, to look through the bright side and take a positive view and infuse positive energy into everybody I see. And I think the one thing that people do walk away with meetings from me or, or, or repeated encounters with me is, man, that guy is just always, um, you know, pushing forward and, and always tries to put a positive spin on everything. And that's okay. I, if people want to walk away with that impression of me, that's great. Because I think it it spreads. It's like a virus. It's true. I could say from our many meetings that I always walk away feeling um, feeling that you've got things handled or you're driving forward or if you like, you know, um, yeah, you're building a better future. That's what I know about Terry. Yeah. And, and I hope that that kind of rubs off um, – you know, not from the leadership perspective, but just pure personality. And, um, and I think that's, I think that's what good leaders actually do in some respects is that, um, they have to, they're, they're at the top of the, of the iceberg as it were, and they can't let it sink, but that's another analogy. But I think, I, I think, uh, people follow the leader, right? And I think I'm, I'm not that I'm constantly consciously in leadership mode all the time, but I think, all the things I learned in being a leader, I try to apply as being a human. And I think they, they work, you know, they're, they're good. And, and I think that's how our leadership and being a human is connected. If you'd like to follow Terry, you can catch him on Twitter at Starbucker. You can also go to terrystarbucker.com, Starbucker, like the um, coffee um, 
trademark pending, whatever that is, right? Um, um, dot com. They'll also be in the in the show notes there. Terry, thanks so much for taking the time out today to, to talk to us. And I appreciate everything that you're doing and um, helping the other creative giants stand tall, too. Well, Charlie, thank you for this pleasure of, of speaking to you on tape like this. It's been a real joy. And um, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.